This is The Guardian. Today, why are the police stepping back from mental health calls? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we start, I want to let you know that in this episode, we mentioned self-harm and suicidal thoughts. So please take care while you're listening. Angela is the mum of a woman we're calling Louise. Louise is 19, and for the past few years, she's been having a really distressing time with her mental health. In June last year, as she had many times before, she ran away from home. And was hearing voices, threatening to harm herself, kill herself. Angela called the police, who went out to find Louise, and they took her to hospital. Louise wasn't taken to a psychiatric unit, but to A&E. The first night she was sitting on a chair and the police were standing next to her, one on either side, so you just feel like you're a criminal. She just spent the whole night there. And did you have conversations with the police officers that were watching her at that point? Absolutely. You know, they said, this is a busy area that we police. We know we should be out there on the streets and answering calls, helping other people, because... Your daughter's in a hospital, surrounded by medical professionals, and nobody's taken responsibility for her. Couldn't make it up, could you, really? The police waited with her for 12 hours, and then A&E staff and security guards took over. In total, Louise spent more than eight days in A&E. She escaped from security twice during that time, before a bed was eventually found for her in a psychiatric hospital. It was just soul-destroying. She needs help and she's not getting it. Through no fault of the people that are there. I mean, the police were lovely, but they said we're just not trained. It's not helping anybody. The NHS trusts involved in Louise's care have both apologised and said there'd been severe pressure on beds. While the length of time Louise had to wait is somewhat unusual, it's not uncommon for people in mental distress to be forced into the care of police as she was. According to the Royal College of Policing, officers are spending somewhere between 20 and 40% of their time responding to calls about mental health. And police chiefs across the country are saying this situation has to stop so they can focus on fighting crime. My police officers, like those across the country, they're caring people, they want to make a difference, they will do their best. But they're the wrong people to be doing it, and it's we're letting vulnerable people in communities down. In London, the Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, has said that from the end of August, his officers will only attend if someone's life is in danger, which is their legal duty. This approach has been pioneered by police in Humberside, and while most mental health professionals agree with it in principle, they're worried about how quickly Rowley's asking them to be ready in London. As far as Angela, Louise's mum, is concerned, the system's got to change.
I don't have the answers, but I know two police officers for 12 hours in an A&E department, as lovely as they are, it's not a solution, you know, because you need that mental health input right at that point. You know, somebody to talk you down, to talk you through it. But if they're not available, it just goes on. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, who should attend mental health calls? Angela, could you start off by just telling me a little bit about your daughter? What's she like? Our daughter Louise is uh, 19, 20 next month. She was adopted by us at four years old. (sighs) Always had difficulty at school. She left at 16 and started work as a lifeguard. Had a long-term boyfriend. All seemed, you know, very, very happy. And then in October of 2020, she began to experience difficulties with her mental health. And really, from then to date, she's been in and out of the mental health care system. And what has she been diagnosed with? Well, that's quite interesting. Now, she's got a good community psychiatrist who believes that she's got ADHD. During her many admissions to a hospital, we had various diagnoses. In fact, I think pretty much every hospital we went to, a doctor had a different diagnosis for her, be it bipolar, emotionally unstable personality disorder, which used to be called borderline personality disorder. So varying diagnoses, if you like. But I think where she is now, it's believed she's got ADHD. What's it been like for her when her mental health's poor? I think the main thing is she becomes overwhelmed. Her emotions just overwhelm her. She was hearing voices telling her to harm herself or kill herself, that she was worthless. It was just like a living hell, really, because we didn't know from day to day how she would be feeling. You're just like you're existing. You're just waiting for the next crisis, if you like. So in the early days, it was very difficult. What did you do then to start trying to get her help? Oh, well, the local mental health team trying to get an assessment. And it was like, well, the waiting lists are very long, blah, blah, blah. You know, you'll wait. I can't remember how long it was to see a psychiatrist. Even though there's a risk to her life? Yeah, yeah. You know, and we, we had evidence of being sectioned, being in hospital, having to call the police out. Still, there was no support. Right, we need to see her. We need to see what's going on for her. So there was nobody asking her those questions. It was always a reactive, oh, she's gone, need to phone the police. So it was just this cycle we were going through and not getting anywhere. And how did you feel about calling the police over a mental health worry? I never enjoyed doing it, but because she was telling me she was going to kill herself, didn't want to be here anymore, literally had, and there was nobody else to call. There is a sort of crisis line, if you like, but I talked to somebody, a mental health person and they would say call the police so I had no option and what have the police done when you've called them they've been fantastic I mean they come out very quickly we're very lucky they've eventually they had her on the system so they'd know that she needed support often I would have you know her location on my phone she wanted help she didn't go off and we didn't know where she was but we couldn't get her to come home because she was hearing these voices so she needed outside input if you like They'd find her, she'd sit in the car while they were waiting, perhaps to get an amp 
to section her. A mental health professional? Mental health professional, yes, to section her. And that was the cycle. And she'd, because there were no beds available in a mental health hospital, she'd be taken to any number of A&Es within the Surrey area. And then the police would be with her under a section 136 for 12 hours. Eventually, a psychiatric doctor, nurse would come and assess her, but it certainly wasn't within those 12 hours when the police were there. That mental health crisis was continuing because there was no specific mental health input. There was definitely no end in sight. We just couldn't see how things were going to change. Helen Pidd, you're The Guardian's northern editor, and you've been speaking to the chief constable of Humberside Police, Lee Freeman, because he's been trying to change the way that his officers deal with calls about mental health. What were the problems in Humberside that he saw that needed to be sorted out? Yeah, so Lee Freeman is the pioneer when it comes to really changing the way that police deal with mental health calls. He took over Humberside Police in 2017 when it was at rock bottom and he said he did a big review of what was going wrong. The overwhelming response he got was a frustration from police officers that they were spending far too much time not doing what they considered to be core police work, so solving crime and catching criminals, essentially, and that they were spending far too much time dealing with mental health incidents. We got heads together and said, OK, so what are we going to do about this? Let's have a look at the evidence. We pulled about 2,000 incidences over the previous two years mm. And we got a small team together to review them and we just couldn't believe what we were attending. What kinds of examples did they find? They were getting 25,000 calls a year, mental health calls, and quite a lot of these were welfare checks. And a welfare check might be a GP's practice or a hospital. Somebody they know has got depression doesn't turn up for an appointment. So they ring the police and say, oh, can you just go around there and check on them? Police forces say yes and We've got to take some responsibility for that as well, because we were saying yes. Also, people who'd been sectioned under the Mental Health Act, perhaps they'd been taken to psychiatric hospital and then they'd gone walkabout and the police were being called to get them back. And, you know, that's actually a pretty tricky situation for a police officer, dealing with somebody who's so mentally ill that they've been sectioned. I've always had the view, if I slip and break my ankle, I don't end up in a police cell. We should not be treating people with mental health, illness, anything other than as a patient. Another example that Lee Freeman gave, which was causing a lot of police time to be used up, is when Section 136 of the Mental Health Act is used to detain somebody who's having a mental health crisis. And police have a legal duty to take the person to a place of safety. But what was often happening is that there was no place of safety because there were no beds. And they were having to wait until there'd been like an official handover with mental health staff. And that was regularly taking 10, 11, sometimes 12 hours. And you'd have two officers at these incidents. So that was something they were very keen to stop happening. A place of safety should be a healthcare setting. Those beds and those assessment places and the staffing needed to take those people, quite frankly, was missing. And so back in 2019, Lee Freeman thought, right, OK, we've got to do something about this. He brought in a new plan, which is called Right Care, Right Person. What's the idea behind it? So the idea with Right Care, Right Person was to send the right experts to the right jobs and to ensure that police officers were not being sent to situations 
for which they were not qualified or that were just not a good use of police time. And how did he go about building that model? So he did that sampling exercise that I mentioned. That was like a really good evidence base that he could go to all of the chief executives of all the various health bodies in Humberside. That would be the hospital trusts, the ambulance trusts, clinical commissioning groups. And he started out with a, an informal conversation. He met up with them all and said, something's got to change. This is what we're thinking about. What do you reckon? And he came away from these meetings feeling pretty despondent. I mean, he's quite polite. When I spoke to him, he said the response was mixed. What he felt was missing from these chief executives in some quarters was a sense of urgency and for them to take responsibility for their side of things. After these conversations, he thought, right, I'm going to have to play a bit hardball here. And he sent out a series of letters where he set some deadlines and said, right, I'm going to give you a year. I want to work with you to make sure that we fill this void in a partnership way. I'm giving you 12 months notice that I am going to stop assuming this risk and it is coming to you and legally you will be liable if anything goes wrong. From May 2020, we're going to phase in right care, right person, starting with welfare checks. And from May 2020, we're going to be much more selective about which mental health welfare checks we go out on. This is not police saying we are not attending calls for service for mental health anymore because we still attend 25%. There are still occasions where it's entirely appropriate for the police still to go because there's an immediate risk to life or there is a crime being committed. It's this model, right care, right person, that's being held up as the gold standard that police forces across the country are going to be adopting. So let's have a look at it in detail. You've explained that the welfare checks were the first thing. Yeah. Like, how did he actually work with mental health chiefs to make sure that this was going to be a feasible plan? Well, the key thing, he would say, is that he gave them time. He wasn't offering them any extra money, and there certainly wasn't an expectation that there was going to be a sudden dip in calls. So it was like, right, we're going to get these 25,000 calls a year. We're not going to attend them. So what are you, health services, going to do about it? And the way he puts it, he's a bit vague about it. He kind of says, well, they found the money in their budgets to do it. And when I was speaking to Michelle Moran, the chief executive of the Humber Teaching Foundation Trust, she was saying that she did indeed find some money within the existing budgets. She didn't want to tell me exactly how much money she spent, but she said it was over a few hundred thousand pounds. They put more care workers into the services so they can support the individuals while they're waiting to be assessed. So that's what it actually supported. And then across the system, there were more crisis beds made available. And crucially, those beds were going to be available 24-7, which had always previously officially been the case. But in practice, often the mental health workers were just not available at the point when police were phoning saying, we've got a patient for you here. What does Michelle Moran think about how well Right Care, Right Person has been working over the few years that it's been running in Humberside? She thinks that it is running pretty well and she's worked in really close partnership with Humberside Police and with the Chief Constable. And I think that's probably really important that you've got the two most senior members of their organisations completely invested in this. And she admits, you know, looking back at it, she says, we were ringing the police too often. These are patients who are sectioned under the Mental Health Act who then leave when they haven't got official leave to do so under the Act. And we were picking the phone up and ringing the police. 
she feels that it's definitely been a success, but it's been a long process. You know, they started this in 2019 and they phased in over a period of about a year. So they've had kind of three years to get to the position that they're in now. What have been the challenges with bringing in right care, right person? It required a real culture change within Humberside Police. And I find it very interesting how Lee Friedman talks about what was happening in the control room with the call handlers, who are the ones who answer the phone when you dial 999. Many of them have been in there for 10, 15, 20 years and have just said yes. But suddenly saying no, we found our staff were really, really worried because they do care about the people on the end of the line and they want to help. They sort of had to have their brains reprogrammed a little bit to say, do you know what, it's not always the right thing. So they brought in experts from Mind, the mental health charity, who were kind of embedded within the control room, who would like walk the floor and they could be collared by any of the call handlers to say, listen, I'm not quite sure what to do in this situation. So we had floor walkers, trained floor walkers, supporting them for six months, reassuring and saying, now under right care, right person, we're going to pass this to another agency and it's appropriate and we've done the risk assessment and there's no immediate risk. But that really takes a lot of time. How well has it gone in Humberside from a policing perspective? So by all accounts, it's been pretty stunning success in Humberside. So three years after they implemented Right Care, Right Person, Humberside Police now attend an average of 508 fewer incidents each month. And Lee Freeman has calculated that that saves 1,440 officer hours each month. And he says that with those free officers, he's done a few really distinct things. So he's formed new teams, for example, that target drug dealers, and he's got another team that finds missing people. So now Humberside Police has got the highest arrest rates and the highest detection rate for all crimes compared with all of the other police forces in England and Wales. It sounds like Lee Freeman tried to be careful about bringing in right care, right person gradually over several years. And other forces have been starting to bring it in as well. But in London, the Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, has decided to do things much more quickly. He's planning to bring it in by the end of August. He he wrote a letter to that effect earlier this year, didn't he, which our crime correspondent Vikram Dodd broke in The Guardian. Do we know why he's put that short time span on it? So we don't know yet, but in Humberside, Lee Freeman is sort of, when he saw Vikram's story, he immediately recognised what was going on there. And he says that he thinks that that letter, I think he said it's about a catalyst for change. I also had to give some deadlines on a couple of occasions Mm. in order to bring some partners to the table. I think sometimes it is a legitimate way to try and bring people to the table to recognise that talk has to shift to action. And if that is Matt Rowley's position, he has my full support because that's exactly what I did. And the Home Office has said that they're going to roll out right care, right person nationally as some sort of national agreement. The timescale is vague and I think Mark Rowley's just run out of patience and in order to get some traction, some momentum... Somebody leaked the letter to Vikram. It's caused a certain amount of consternation among mental health services in London, thinking, crikey, we better take this guy seriously now. Does Lee Freeman think it will be possible to bring it in so quickly? No, he doesn't think three months is realistic at all, but it's potentially a starting point. He gave services in Humberside a year 
to get their houses in order. And actually, his timetable ended up slipping a little bit, particularly with these Section 136 calls, which turned out to be the most difficult ones to resolve. It was maybe 18 months later, after he issued his first deadline, that that was actually came into force. Coming up, the benefits for the police are clear. But what about for mental health services? Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Christina Cheney, you're the chair of the National AMP Leads Network. And for anyone who hasn't heard that abbreviation before, AMP stands for Approved Mental Health Professional. So they're the people who make the assessments on whether somebody is detained, sectioned or not, which means that your members are often working alongside the police. Why is it that the police are so often called to get involved in mental health crises? I think there are probably two reasons for this. One is that mental health-specific resources are so stretched beyond capacity that when police officers become involved in a situation, which then perhaps calms and it becomes appropriate for that situation to be handed over primarily to health-based staff, that handover isn't available for many hours because there are no staff to take it, there are no beds for the person to go to, there are no alternative services available. But the other view, I think, is that most and many emergency services think that mental health isn't their business. They think it should be dealt with by somebody else. And so they tend to label or view any time that's spent on responding to mental health calls as inappropriate for their service. And that's something that I think as a society we need to challenge. Mental health is everybody's business. We've all got a role to play in supporting people in crisis. I think the key really is that we're all playing the role that we're trained for and we don't leave one person responsible for everything. 
The Met Police have told mental health providers in London that they need to be ready for right care, right person by the end of August. What level of detail have your members been given on how this might work? None. And that's another one of their concerns. It needs to be a lot clearer about what changes are going to be made exactly. There are a vast number of reasons why people might contact emergency services in relation to mental health. And in some of those situations, the police probably don't have a role. And in some of those situations, they do. And we need to have a clear understanding about all the different scenarios that can present and how the police are planning to respond to each one. And in ones where they're planning on no longer providing a response, it needs to be very clear then who is the right person to provide a response? Do they know that they will now be expected to do that? Are they resourced? Are they trained? Are they able to do that? Are there contingency plans in place? And that needs multi-agency working. It needs planning. It needs time. And none of those things have been made evident so far. You're far and away not the only person raising concerns about this. I know Sarah Hughes is the chief executive of Mind, the mental health charity. She said, I'm not persuaded we have enough in the system to tolerate a shift to this new approach. If mental health providers in London aren't ready by the end of August, what could that mean for people who need help? It could mean that they're left without help and that they're left at risk. We already see that now before this has been implemented. And we are routinely in situations where people are in distress, they are in need of care, they're in need of support, they're in need of containment and they're not getting it. The mental health system does not have the capacity to support people when they're in distress at the moment. We don't have the right mental health support and we don't have enough of it. And that's before big changes like this are coming in. Christina, the government has promised £150 million in funding for mental health over the next two years, specifically, they say, for people to get care outside of A&E in, in what they call more appropriate settings. How much of a help is that going to be? It will be a help, but it's not enough. Mental health problems are complex. It's not as simple as just providing more money to the NHS. In some areas, there is plenty of funding available, but it can't be spent because the staff can't be sourced. I've worked in areas where our entire hospital ward, despite in being in dire straits and struggling for beds, a whole ward had to be closed down and all the beds closed because they weren't able to staff the ward. And that's not an uncommon thing to happen. Austerity has meant that a lot of the preventative services that we have in the community have been underfunded or defunded, focusing more on urgent emergency statutory services. So without that prevention, those services become more overloaded and it becomes more difficult to work in them and people become less willing to work in them. And so now even when there is the funding, there aren't always the staff to be able to manage the services. In Humber, that's an area where they have piloted the mental health specific ambulance, but a lot of the time it doesn't run because they haven't got enough staff to be able to man it. Local councils have a big role to play in this, don't they? Especially when you're thinking about things like providing people with adequate housing. Yeah, very much so. The social issues that the most vulnerable people in our society are faced with are significant and that's where our local authorities have got a lot of expertise to be able to support. Most mental health crises are a result of a social crisis. Poverty, loneliness, housing issues, relationships, trauma, abuse, oppression. If we look at the rates of detention, for example, some statistics released showed that rates of detention were significantly correlated with rates of deprivation. So that shows us that, you know, at the severe end of mental distress, where people are losing their liberty being detained in hospital, it's very much related with some socioeconomic conditions that people are living in. So, you know, we don't need doctors and medication for that. They are helpful and they will provide some support for symptom control, but it doesn't address 
the determinants of the mental health crisis and it doesn't support recovery in the same way. And you can see why the police make the argument that in many situations, they're not the appropriate people. They wouldn't be welcome in those situations, you know, for somebody who is going through mental distress. Possibly the last person they'll want to see is a police officer. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's absolutely right. And I don't think the police have got a role to play in providing mental health support or providing social care support. The role that the police have is in safely containing and managing community situations that are high risk. There are occasions when that's needed to maintain someone's safety or the people around them's safety. And the police are the only people in our society that are tasked with that level of physical intervention in a community setting. And we also can't underestimate the impact the presence of a police officer can have in de-escalating a situation, in preventing something from going wrong or in supporting the cooperation of somebody in coming to hospital, for example. So do you think right care, right person can be done across the country? I do. I do think it can be done, but only if everybody's working together. There's no way that it can be done by saying we're withdrawing from that because that's not our business anymore. It's all of our business, but we just need to make sure that we're not doing something that's not our expertise. Angela, how's your daughter doing now? She's getting a lot better. She's been four months home without hospital admission. She's got a very good community psychiatrist and she's having the correct medication for that. The self-harm has stopped. She's saying she's not hearing voices. It's almost like you have to live through the experience and find out what works and doesn't work because she'll say to us, I don't want to go to hospital again because it doesn't help. Mm. It's just it's taken 18 months to get to that point and, you know, it's a long time in a young person's life and it could have ended very differently as you read every day that it does end differently for a lot of young people and, and that's what we worry about, not just for her but for all these young people that aren't getting the support and treatment that they need. Do you think this new police approach might be able to help people like her who need mental health support? I think it's got to be tried, hasn't it? It's it's not going to be a perfect system. And some people will still need police input if they're threatening to kill themselves or they've got a knife and they're threatening a member of the public. Obviously, police will need to deal with that. We've got to try it. We can't carry on as we are because we've experienced it as not working and not, not helping a young person in crisis. Thank you again to Angela and to all her family. Thanks to Helen Pidd, our Northern England editor, and to Christina Cheney from the National AMP Leads Network. If you've been struggling with your mental health, please know that help is available. The charity Mind, who we mentioned earlier in the episode, have loads of useful information on their website. That's mind.org.uk. And you can also contact Samaritans for free any time of the day or night. Their number is 116 123 and their email address is joe, that's J-O, at samaritans.org. I produce this episode alongside George McDonough. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury and the executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.